0: Welcome to the Best of the Left Podcast, with clips today from Countdown, Ring of Fire, NPR, On the Media, and Radio Nation.
1: To swift boat. The Pennsylvania congressman and honored Vietnam vet Jack Murtha has not only failed, but the boat was swamped and the malefactors washed overboard. Our third story on the countdown, a Florida newspaper admits now it misquoted Murtha's comments, which had allegedly included his belief that the U.S. was the greatest threat to international peace. The newspaper has now admitted its reporter or somebody screwed up and screwed up badly. Mirtha was merely quoting an international poll that said many people in many other countries felt that way. The paper has corrected its Killian memo's level mistake. The conservative uh, conservative propagandists who then slammed Mirtha like Bill O'Reilly, correcting, don't hold your breath. Murtha spoke Saturday in the Miami area, and the next day's editions of the South Florida Sun Sentinel newspaper continue, or contained an article with this eye-popping sentence. American presence in Iraq is more dangerous to world peace than nuclear threats from North Korea or Iran, U.S. Representative John Murtha said to a crowd of more than 200 in North Miami Saturday afternoon. Conservative web spinner Matt Drudge put a link to the paper on his website. Presto, cue the flurry of right-wing outrage. Fox News chimed in with Billow using it as an example of why, quote, Mirtha has lost all perspective. And he, of course, is an expert on that. The Wall Street Journal opined on the story. Former Speaker Newt Gingrich even said he hoped Congress would censure the congressman. Only problem, Mirtha never said that. After a rival newspaper's reporter issued a statement saying Mirtha was merely quoting polling, the Sun Sentinel has now issued a correction of its story, quoting it. An article in Sunday's editions misinterpreted a comment from U.S. Representative John Murtha at a town hall meeting in North Miami on Saturday. In his speech, Murtha said U.S. credibility was suffering because of continued U.S. military presence in Iraq and the perception that the U.S. is an occupying force. Murtha was citing a recent poll by the Pew Global Attitudes Project that indicates a greater percentage of people in 10 of 14 foreign countries consider the U.S. in Iraq a greater danger to world peace than any threats posed by Iraq or North Korea. The Wall Street Journal has put a clarification link on its article slamming Murtha To his credit, Britt Hume of Fox News read the correction on the air. Still hasn't changed anything in his article that still cites the same misquote. Mr. O'Reilly presumably stuck his fingers in his ears or stuck something in them and went, woo, 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 I can't hear you, woo, woo, woo. And as to O'Reilly, as his lying about Mirtha suggests, there has been the usual baying at the moon, the facts that prove far more difficult for him to understand than the fables and the suggestion we should use Saddam Hussein's tactics to pacify post-Saddam Iraq. But otherwise, it's been very quiet over in that other plane of non-existence known as O'Reilly Land. That has now changed, and you know what that means. Hey kids, what time is it?
2: Countdown presents Fact or Fiction, wherein we catch that bastard Bill O'Reilly lying again. Oh, wait, Bill, hold still. Allow me to soil myself on you.
3: Victory is mine!
1: Yes, Bill came off the tracks again Tuesday night in a rant split evenly between the two avenging angels who haunt his dreams, Air America Radio and MSNBC. Écoutez et traduisez, as they said in French class. If you've read any of my books... Which one, the softcore porn novel that was reviewed on Amazon as a real load in the pants, or the advice book for kids that came out just as the Andrea Macris scandal broke? If you've read any of my books, you know I believe in karma. Do bad things, you'll get yours eventually. Now you know why I'm here, Bill. You've done bad things. Do good things, you'll be rewarded. Recently, two bad guys got theirs... Here, Bill went off into some story about management changes at Air America, a radio network he called d which I understand was the birth name of D-Snyder from Twisted Sister. He eventually meandered towards the point. We believe there is major chaos at that far-left concern. As an aside, Bill, who's this we you always talk about? You and Ann Coulter? You and your multiple personalities? You and your loofah?
4: It's also major chaos at MSNBC, where Rick Kaplan has
1: left. Bill made another funny... See, by overemphasizing the word left, he is sending a subtle signal to the dim bulbs in his audience that former MSNBC president Rick Kaplan might have had personal political beliefs that tended towards liberal or left. Bill invented the term. Where Rick Kaplan has left after pretty much destroying that place. Bill boy. bill Hey! Over here. Back in reality-based reality. The latest ratings have come out. From a year ago to right now, MSNBC's ratings are up 12% overall, 13% among viewers 25 to 54, and at the hour you and I are on head-to-head, we're up 37%, and you're down 20%, and... I know, I'm sorry. Too many numbers in there. You were assured there would be no math. Closing in on its 10th anniversary, MSNBC's ratings are lower than they were six years ago, which might be... Ridiculous! You just sort of got lost in that last sentence, huh, Bill? Listen, Slappy. Fox's ratings are lower than they were five years ago. Billow, 267,000 of your nightly viewers have vanished since last June. Call Fox Security, they're missing. All 11 of Fox's regular shows' ratings are down. Four of them are down by 15 percent or more. If John Gibson loses any more audience, he won't even need a microphone. And your boss, Jabba the Hut, he's taking out ads, threatening to fire his own employees. Your ratings whooping stick is now smaller than your falafel. Bill, seriously, it's slipping away from you. You don't know what to do. You can't even lie well anymore. Seriously, I understand. It's called panic. Like what happened to you in Scranton and Hartford and Boston with that thing with the egg on Zippy the sportscaster's face, and at ABC when Rick Kaplan got you fired. It's terrifying. You begin to see the audience dying off, and the creases deepening in your forehead, and the loofahs drying up. You make mistakes. You trust the wrong people. You blame Al Franken. You yell at somebody. You yell at everybody. It feels like the ladder is teetering. You're tired. You're depressed. You're anxious. You're balding. Let me give you three boards of advice, Billow.
4: Keep it up. I turn around and talk. I You have to love this. I mean, Mary Madeline is appearing on talk shows explaining how proud she is of Ann Coulter's comments describing widows of 9/11 as whiners and gold-digging harpies. And this hate hag also added that these women probably were going to be divorced by their dead husbands anyway before they died a slow, painful death by burning up in the Twin Towers. Mary Madeline, just like most true blue blood Republicans, believe it's just fine to make fun of widows. That's what they're doing. They're making fun of these people. Women who've been married 20, 30, or 40 years to the same man, raised children, and even grandchildren with the same man, before that man burned to death in an inferno that reached 1,300 degrees. And you know what? Mainstream Republicans have no shame about making fun of these widows side by side, standing right beside Ann Coulter. Their once proud, very functional political party is today so consumed with vile hate that they're acting and sounding like clinical sociopaths. And that's okay with them because it is a political party where clinical sociopath has a good ring to many of the rank and file knuckle-dragging Republicans out there today. To really understand what would drive culture, besides greed of course, you first have to understand a few of the characteristics of a sociopath. One characteristic is that they're people who are incapable of understanding or feeling normal human emotions such as compassion, empathy or sympathy. Their brain synapses simply don't register such emotions. I've heard sociopaths being referred to as emotional cripples people with character disabilities with those kinds of parameters though it's easy to understand Ann Coulter. Here's a woman who's never even had a meaningful relationship with another person that lasted longer than the gestation period of a damn fruit fly and let me clarify two things contained in that statement I just made. First I'm not at all certain that Ann Coulter is even a woman. Women don't have Adam's apples. Second, this is for you, Ann, cheesy one-night stands, I'm sorry, they don't qualify as long-term relationships. Coulter is a 44-year-old woman or man, I mean, you make the choice, who's never had a child and it doesn't appear that she's ever had any kind of nurturing relationship that would even enable her to appreciate the pain that these widows have lived with for five years. I mean, this is a person who lost her job at the National Review, for God's sakes, one of the most knee-jerk conservative rags on the market because even they recognized that she was unstable. She lost her job at USA Today because she was creeping out her readers. These days, Ann Coulter can't show up on a college campus to give a speech without fighting her way through protesters who want to throw food and probably even worse than that at her. Students make attempts to physically block her entrance to the campus. They shout her down so loudly that police usually have to escort her off stage. But you know what? All that's just fine with Republican leadership. The reason the Republican leadership embraces a hate hag like Ann Coulter is because it's a political party that has has no shame about what they've become, because just like Ann Coulter, the fringe arm of the Republican Party has become a damn traveling freak show. She is the Republican wholly owned freak show snake woman, and the Republican Party leadership is her proud freak show promoter.
5: The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com
3: or airamericaradio.com for more info. It's not polite to stare at people, but have you seen the new Superman? No, not Karl Rove. The guy I'm talking about actually looks good in tights. Tell me everything. Does he still stand for truth, justice, all that stuff? Still stands for truth, justice, and all that stuff, but also for big, big price inflation in the making of blockbuster movies. The last four times Superman was here on Earth, he cost the studio that paid his way, Warner Brothers, around $50 million each time. This return trip is raising some eyebrows. I know some people are asking a lot of questions now that I'm back. I think it's only fair that I answer those people. Superman Returns is costing Warner Brothers over $350 million. I want to know it all, everything. Also, I want to see photos of him everywhere. And marketing Superman will presumably push his price higher. So, who pays for the new Superman? His fans?
4: Wrong!
3: People who watch CNN, naturally. It's possible people who even hate blockbuster movies and love only Wolf Blitzer paid for the new Superman movie. Even though you've been raised as a human being, you are not one of them. CNN and Superman. They are produced by the same corporation. And without CNN's $304 million profit last year, Time Warner wouldn't be able to gamble more than that on one movie this year. This is why it's vital America watch Anderson Cooper interview Angelina Jolie. So Superman can fly again. Wait for it. Elsewhere, it is NBC News that will help pay for parent Universal's new movies. ABC News will feed the costs of its parent Disney. And CBS News, where it once helped pay for Paramount's movies, will now pay for its own movies, as was just announced by CBS CEO and President Les Moonves, who says he wants to get into the movie business. If the current trend persists, next year, the Oscar could go to an action movie produced by C-SPAN. Come with me. You're not going to want to miss this. The corporatization of news and its effects on news content all deserve more attention, more discussion, and more passionate debate. Those were the mostly overlooked parting words from one of the last supermen of news, Dan Rather, as he left CBS where he'd spent 44 years working. Rather then added... I'll see you soon. So long, Superman. Could it be that the more we flock to $200 million blockbusters, the fewer reporters and less news we'll have in our democracy? The
6: world can always use more good reporters.
3: But why pay for more good reporters and their news when corporations like Time Warner can instead make Superman return again and again and again? I mean, in the end, what and who is really gonna save us? I have sent the mule, my only son. And that is today's Unger report. I'm Brian Unger.
2: Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada, named after the hugely popular blog The Daily Coast. Bloggers and politicians are congregating in the desert to attend workshops and panels ranging from the CIA leak investigation to, quote, down ballot online organizing. More than anything, it's a chance for the so called net roots, normally scattered throughout the country, to assemble and strategize in the flesh. The fact that bloggers are gathering is not unique. The fact that they are being visited by Democratic Party heavies including Howard Dean, Barbara Boxer, Bill Richardson, Tom Vilsack, Mark Warner, and Harry Reid is it appears the Netroots have arrived. Matt Stoller is among them in Las Vegas this weekend. He blogs for MyDD.com and runs BlogPack, a Netroots political action committee. Altogether, he's an ideal candidate for articulating the meaning of Netroots.
6: Netroots is a term that combines the word Internet and grassroots. They're people that are new actors in the political system and use the Internet to make their voice heard.
2: Does it have a democratic connotation, or does it not?
6: Well, I think it does. I mean, first of all, the progressive net roots were a market response to the failure to deliver good liberal information. There are already plenty of channels to find conservative information. You can watch television news. You can listen to radio. There's plenty of websites already, Newsmax, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are lots of newspapers, editorials, and there really wasn't very many places for liberals to get information. So in one sense, the blogs first became big on the the left because of that. You also have um, a need for new institutions on the left, and you don't have that on the right because the right controls the White House, the Senate, the House, and the intellectual debate in this country. So it's not that the Internet is more prone to left-wing ideas. It's just that they don't need it as much. But you also have the fact that, Blue areas have higher Internet penetration and more broadband, and so those people who have that are more likely to be online.
2: This first yearly cost managed to pull in some major Democratic leaders. What specifically can blogs and bloggers do for politicians? We know they raised a lot of money for Howard Dean during the last presidential election. We know that they were able to organize canvassers. Is that the principal goal here, to organize An army of uh, political activists? Yeah. I mean, I think
6: that if you look at situations going on now in Connecticut, for instance, where you have a primary, the blogs have raised a lot of money for a primary challenger to Senator Lieberman. But not just money, but also support and messaging and have done research and have really created a public uh, forum for debate.
2: You know, when Howard Dean was running strong during the last presidential race, the mainstream media declared the blogosphere a secret weapon, an undiscovered country that could make or break candidates. After Dean pretty much fell abruptly from grace, the blogosphere was regarded as an overrated chimera that really didn't have much effect on campaigns at all. Do you think there was just too much rushing to judgment here?
6: Of course. The people who are saying that are you know, insiders protecting their turf. You know, the Washington Press Corps and the sort of traditional democratic establishment, they're faddish, they act like high school children, (laughs) and, you know, they're they're not adults about these things. I mean, the blogs are new to the process, they represent millions of people coming into the process and participating, and we're not uh, facile. We don't obsess about who's in and who's out. We don't think about things like the Clinton's marriage and whether it's important. We're not part of that whole culture of really vapid insiderism. I mean, there are millions of us, and what is it, the Gang of 500 are the the most important journalists in D.C.? Like, there's 500 of them. That's not democracy. That's not what what this country is about. So I don't really care what they say. I don't care what they think about uh, this movement because it is a movement and it represents so many more people and so much more energy. And, you know, two years later, after the presidential election, you know, we're still here. We're still plugging away. We're participating. You know, we're changing the country every day and we're getting stronger and we're learning more and we're getting more experienced.
2: All right. Matt, thank you very much.
6: All right. Well, thanks a lot.
2: Matt Stoller blogs for MyDD.com. The politician most associated with the Netroots is Democratic National Committee Chairman Howard Dean. He joins me now. Governor, welcome to the show. Happy to be on. Now, Netroot candidates won some and lost some in this week's elections. In a Democratic Senate primary in Montana, the Netroot favorite, John Tester, beat his Democratic opponent, John Morrison. But in a closely watched special election in California, the House seat forcibly vacated by disgraced Republican Duke Cunningham, was filled by another Republican, a lobbyist, no less. Now, that's a big loss for the net root Democrat, isn't it?
7: Well, we actually consider that a win for the Democrat. Um, we didn't pick up the seat, but we were only a few points short. They had to spend uh, about $6 million in a congressional race. If we can do that, we'll bankrupt the Republican Party. It was all the -the on-the-ground stuff that made the difference. And we didn't win, but we came very close because of the -the on-the-ground stuff and the -the on-the-ground stuff and the uh, online stuff are mixed closely and tightly together because that's how you get people to knock on doors is organizing through the Internet.
2: And that's what you did in your presidential campaign, plus uh, raising a lot of money on the Internet. But then again, Governor, you didn't win.
7: But it had nothing to do with the Internet folks, with the Internet community. We didn't win because I didn't make the... Proper transition in September when I became the front runner from being an insurgent to being someone who could be seen as president by a large majority of Americans. It had nothing to do with the failings of the Netroot community. The Netroot community, the internet community, made our campaign.
2: Uh, The Daily Coast was one of the websites that helped make your campaign, I guess. And blogger Marcos Melitsis Zuniga is the founder of the Daily Coast. Now, he and Jerome Armstrong, who worked on your campaign and founded another political blog, MyDD.com, wrote a book together called Crashing the Gate, Netroots, Grassroots, and the Rise of People-Powered Politics, and it's really critical of the Democratic Party. In fact, it's been described as a manifesto for taking back politics. Did you read it? Did you learn anything?
7: Well, you know, there's not much in there I don't agree with. They're a little harsh on the Democratic Party, but the Democratic Party is an institution in the middle of change. And these uh, so-called bloggers uh, are the agents of change. It is true that they can't win elections, although they can put you in a position where you can win elections with other uh, factors. But it's also true that we're getting to the position where you can't win without them.
2: But do you think that the net roots pose the risk of dividing the party by pulling it further to the left, especially in such a conservative time?
7: I think it's a big mistake to talk about left, right and center anymore. Those terms are relatively meaningless. I think what you're seeing is a reform movement and a renewal movement in the Democratic Party. And the mainstream press is always going to focus on the conflict in that renewal movement. But underneath the hood, if you look at uh, what's happening, there's actually a fair amount of cooperation. Uh, The so-called bloggers or the Netroots community is interested in helping Democrats, even traditional Democrats, uh, who aren't necessarily reform, if they uh, will stand up for the kind of uh, vision of America that America used to stand for before the right wing began governing the country. So there's a lot more cooperation between the traditional Democrats and the bloggers, as you might think. First of all, secondly, the bloggers are the cutting edge. And we need people out there who are always pushing the envelope. But I think this term, again, of left, right and center is is essentially irrelevant in today's politics.
2: So as the head of the DNC, you embrace the reform elements so strongly championed by the net roots. You find yourselves on the same page.
7: That's true. We do. Their politics is not the politics of personality. Harry Reid, I would say, is a fairly traditional Democratic politician. When he shut down the Senate because uh, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee lied about whether he was going to investigate Iraq, the response from the Netroots community was extraordinary. These folks are interested in ideals; they're not interested in personalities, and I find that very, very refreshing at a time when the mainstream press mostly dwells on personalities and personal foibles instead of actual issues. These folks on the block, by and large, at least on the Democratic side, are issues-oriented people who want to change America for the better.
2: All right, Governor Dean, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Howard Dean is the chairman of the DNC. Paul Begala is a Democrat, a political analyst, and CNN commentator. He stands outside the dance going on between bloggers and politicians. But he has a stake in whether everyone gets their steps right. He'd like to see his party gain control of the House in 06 and control of the White House in 08. And Netroots is, as we've heard, part of the strategy. Paul Begala, welcome to OTM. Thank you. So what do you make of the likes of Howard Dean and Harry Reid making the trip to Las Vegas to address the Netroots bloggers this weekend?
5: Well, I think it's great. Politicians are like Willie Sutton, the famous bank robber, right? They asked him why he robbed banks. He said that's where the money's at. I'd rather them be spending their time with liberal bloggers you know, than in back rooms with, uh, with Washington lobbyists.
2: Yeah, but how soon, in your opinion, until blogs, say, rise to the level of TV, newspapers, and news magazines in terms of influencing politics? Or is this really about dollars and cents in the end? No, I think it's a little of both. Governor Dean, when he was running for president, was the first breakthrough
5: candidate in terms of Internet fundraising, although he didn't do very well in the primaries. He he showed a way to raise large amounts of money ethically. (laughs) Internet fundraising has the capacity to have very few strings attached. Because if you're only giving $25 or $200 or relatively small amounts of money from millions of people, it's mostly people who simply share your values and want to see you win.
2: So aside from money, what can blogs do for Democrats that the Democrats haven't been able to do for themselves? Well,
5: you can begin with a spinal transplant. Um, you know, that's, it's a difficult thing. But politicians generally, this is uh, across the board. They generally begin, you know, the same way that entrepreneurial business people begin or anybody else who takes a risk in life. But, you know, when you get here to Washington, they become more risk-averse. The more you have, the more you fear that you will lose. But a lot of the bloggers don't have anything to lose. They're sitting there with relatively low barriers to entry, low overhead costs. If they're good, they attract an audience. And so they have less to lose. And I think that the very important thing that they can do is bring a little more backbone, a little more courage, a little more spine to my party. Second... What's revolutionary in terms of media is that the bloggers on the left have begun to do what the right has been doing for 30 years, which is to try to police the media itself. There are bloggers, there are websites who track the so-called mainstream media coverage and critique it, and I think it's enormously useful.
2: And now liberal bloggers have written a book, or maybe several, criticizing the Democratic Party for lack of a spine The net roots really aren't in a position at this point to dictate to the Democratic Party, are they? No,
5: but it's useful to have them in the mix. You know, it's a marketplace of ideas. And if voters and the politicians believe that those observations are correct, they'll adjust to them and and adapt to them. And I think they are. I mean, uh, three years ago, most of the mainstream media was marching along and supporting the president's drive to war. Uh, I'm very proud that on my little much-maligned show crossfire, Carvel and I, and Bob Novak on the right, for that matter, were all critics of the war and opponents of it. But today, the net roots have grown so much bigger that I think it's a lot less likely that the majority of Democrats would, have, would go along with the war in Iraq if the vote were today.
2: So in your view, then, uh, the net roots aren't just uh, a temporary port in the storm for Democrats until they achieve majorities again. They're a permanent and important constituency of sorts.
5: They are if they can prove that they can deliver. Again, Howard Dean proved that they can deliver money. I want to see that they can deliver votes. Right now, the contribution is sometimes money and very often ideas, some strategic, some tactical, some philosophical. And labor. But that's what I want. I want to see votes. I want to see organizers. I want to see that kind of work. And I think that that's where the next wave is. It's very hard, actually, to move people from online activism to offline activism. But that, that's the next step. That's what liberals and Democrats are going to have to do.
2: All right. Paul Begala, thank you very much. Thanks, Brooke. In this context, there's no disrespect. So when I bust my round
3: you break your neck. We got five minutes for us to disconnect from all intellectual Follow your intuition, free your inner soul and break away from tradition. Cause when we be out, girl is pulling me out. You wouldn't believe how we wow. It turn it till it's burned out, turn it till it's turned out. Act up from Northwest East Side. Everybody, yeah. everybody, yeah. let's get into get it. Yeah. Get started, on. get started, get, it
6: started. get, it started. get it started. Let's get it started.
8: are are tricky things in George W. Bush's America. And perhaps the most outrageous example of just how tricky came earlier this week. The number was the milestone of the 2,500th death of a U.S. soldier in Iraq. The new White House press secretary Tony Snow offered this reply after saying that he was an idiot for confusing two African-American members of Congress, Georgia's Cynthia McKinney and Texas's Sheila Jackson Lee. Clearly one is the number that Snow is happiest with when it comes to the quota of women of color he'd be comfy with in the US Congress. But right after saying he was an idiot about that, Snow was asked a simple question.
4: The American deaths uh, in Iraq have reached uh, 2500. Is there any response or reaction from the president on that? No, it's a number, and
1: every time there's one of these 500 benchmarks, people want something.
8: It's just a number, and every time there's one of these benchmarks, people want something. I mean, this goes beyond George W. Lives in a Bubble. This goes beyond what the heck are they thinking or drinking over there at the White House. If you pull back the lens and look At other news on the horizon this week, a very ugly picture of this country of ours is emerging. And the numbers, about as factual a measure as you'll get these days, tell the story. It's just a number, says Snow. Well, here are just a few more numbers. 2,500 dead U.S. soldiers in Iraq It's just a number. 5,000 public housing apartments in New Orleans, the number to be raised so new buildings for wealthier people can be built instead. It's just a number. $1.4 billion, the amount of post-Katrina FEMA money that was apparently misspent by fraudulent housing claims according to the Accountability Office. But that doesn't include 900 million wasted on temporary housing trailers that were too wide. They're just numbers but not if you have to live in them. Nearly $9 billion. That's the amount paid to U.S. contractors in Iraq that has simply gone missing, according to the Pentagon. And here's a number, $934,000. That's the salary that Carol DeBatiste earned last year from ChoicePoint, a Homeland Security Department contractor. She joined in April five right after she left her job at a division of the Homeland Security Department where she was making only $155,000. Dozens is the number of cases the New York Times reported on today where former top Homeland Security officials have left public service to go and work in profit service, their own private companies with giant contracts with the government. People are dying. People are suffering. And a whole lot of people are making a killing in George W. Bush's America. But heck... They're all just numbers, right? 2,500 U.S. soldiers may be, in Tony Snow's world, just a number, but nearly a million-dollar salary in that same world, now that is a number. We're talking about numbers, which ones matter, which ones are, well, just numbers. There's always been a split, people will say, and somebody, one of you will probably say it. It's always been this way. There's always been a split between haves and have-nots in the U.S.A., But as we're going to hear later on today's program, when it comes to the split between victims and predators, it's never been harsher than under George W. Bush's so-called compassionate conservatives. The only family or other the only value in this family value America they talk about seems to be the one marked by a dollar sign. Is that how you value your family? So here's my question. The Nation magazine came out with a special issue this week, a 10-year anniversary special on what they're calling the National Entertainment State. It is packed with numbers on how many companies control the vast majority of our media. How many? I should actually say how few. There's a centerfold, not that kind of centerfold, a big map of the media world in the middle of the magazine, and it reveals that just six major corporations own almost all of our major sources of media and they learn a lot of other things too like books and publishing houses and movies and websites and oil and gas drilling machines and air force jets and sweatshops and parks and resorts so just how deeply invested what would be the number that reflects how invested they are in the news stories they claim to cover well exactly six i guess it's just a number. Now, right after Tim Russett interviewed uh, Jack Merthyr on NBC, he interviewed three, there's a number, three oil company executives, the same guys that head up the companies that pay for the program through buying the ads. The interviews with the oil company executives were interspersed with the ads from their companies, it was all very fair and balanced, as you can imagine. Now, in the clip we're going to play, David O'Reilly, chairman and CEO of the Chevron Corporation, responds to criticism surrounding the amount that oil company CEOs earn, especially in light of the news this year that Exxon Mobil Corporation invested only $10 million on research on alternative energy while reaping a record $36 billion in profits, and the fact that the New York Times reported recently that retired Exxon Mobil CEO Lee Raymond received a $400 million compensation package in his final year. Here's David O'Reilly.
4: One company's uh, decision on what to pay a chief executive isn't going to solve the problem of energy supply, Tim. We're here today to talk about the solutions, and, and uh, this, this is not going to help uh, resolve the issue of how we bring more supply to the market, which we're investing in heavily to do that, uh, and And work at at promoting alternatives,
8: yeah, but not work very hard. Ten million for alternative research and four hundred million compensation package to the c e o s who is leaving well, you know it's just numbers for the record, mr o'reilly there, Tim Russett's guest, he received a salary of one point five five million dollars in o five that's up from the just one point five million he received. Last year, or rather the year before, in '04, and sad to say his bonus in '05 was down, just 3.5 million. So that was O'Reilly. Meanwhile, you have another oil CEO on the program. Here he is. Uh, this is John Hoffmeister, president of Shell, providing some diversity on the panel today on Meet the Press on NBC, the GE-owned Network.
1: If we start sucking up as oil companies all the ethanol, it's going to hit the price of eggs, the price of bacon, the price of hamburger, the price of Doritos and Fritos, because there's only so much corn to go around.
8: So if we involve ourselves in alternative energy as opposed to drilling in the Arctic, well, you're going to be left with nothing to eat. That was the argument made by the CEO of Shell, which also advertises on NBC, which just happens, of course, as you remember, to be owned by General Electric, which just happens to own a division that makes not only aircraft, but also oil and gas turbines. That's drilling equipment. So as I said, that's the news. That's fit for you and great for their bottom line and pocketbook. So we'll get back to the numbers. Six. Six. The number of companies that own the majority of our media, just a number? The Nation magazine map, and the issue is out today. If you get a subscription, which you can, off our website, and they're not asking me to say this, but I will. They help us produce this program. If you get a subscription today, your subscription can't start with this issue. Just go to our website, radionation.org. Six is just a number, and the map doesn't show a whole lot of other numbers. And that's what I'd like you to weigh in on today. Which numbers are going to make the difference in 21st century America? Their numbers or our numbers? The map doesn't show the new media numbers, the numbers like Google and Yahoo and Microsoft, not to mention the websites and the podcasts and the new media that aren't yet owned by major U.S. corporations and don't yet own a television network. Read the content in the Nation magazine and the people there, all of them smart. We wanted to get many of them on the program. We've got a few. There's a kind of 50-50 split between those who say our media world is getting more diverse thanks to the Internet and podcasts and indie media and film distribution and all the rest, and those who say that the big guys are out to destroy all of that, just look at their assault on the Internet, And the division's sort of heightened by you've got Marcos of the Daily Kos on the one side saying we're in the midst of a people's revolution, and on the other you have Marcus Miller who says we're closer to media Armageddon than we ever were. So I'm back to where I often am. Do numbers matter? In a democracy, they're supposed to, but do they? There are more indie media outlets than TV networks, but do they stand a chance? There are more soldiers than there are secretaries of defense, but it's the soldiers who are doing the dying. There are more people in New Orleans than men in FEMA knocking down their public housing, but they're still going to knock down those buildings. The wild woman of New York, Flo Kennedy, used to ask, what frightens the man most, one enormous lion baying at his door or an invasion by 10 million mice? Which numbers are going to win out in 21st century America?
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the new selection of music as much as I am. You're getting just a taste of the uh, the new selection, and uh, there's lots more to come. Uh, I realized yesterday that... Um, after i had recorded the show and as i was putting the links together to link to the the songs that not all of the songs are actually available in the iTunes music store so uh if you go and check out the uh the show notes the show the um the songs will be listed but they're not all linked so uh, a couple of them um or some of them or many of them who knows who knows how many? Um, you'll just have to find on your own. So good luck with that. I was having kind of an interesting conversation with my minister of propaganda the other day, and it was basically just a, a "whose dick is bigger" type conversation over who had the the most genres, the the highest number of different genres in their iTunes library. And ironically enough, she won. But I I just chalk that up. She's uh she's got a few years, uh jump jump start on me. So uh, you know I, I'm I'm sure I'll catch up in time. But uh, my uh, my selection of music for the show is kind of my response to that conversation. So I'm planning on getting all kinds of eclectic on your asses with. With the music to come, as I'm sure you have noticed already, I'm I'm trying to be very worldly, as uh, as any good American liberal should strive to be, as we uh, as we barrel forward in this uh, in this world, basically as Americans with our blinders on to the to the rest of the world. I uh, I try to open people's eyes a little bit to the things that are going on in the rest of the world. That's kind of... That's our job right now. So to find links, or at least uh, notes on the music, go to thebestoftheleftpodcast.com, find the show notes for this and every show to come, hopefully. And, uh, And while you're there, you can find the convenient link right on the homepage and information on how to nominate the best of the left for a podcast award in the politics category. If you do that, I um, will be forever grateful. I'm going to go ahead and call that it for the day. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one, everybody.
5: I am Bill Alvarez of the Florida Soapbox Podcast, and I am here with my friend, Charlie the Conservative Chipmunk. Say hello, Charlie.
4: Hello, folks.
5: And we are here to tell you about the Progressive Podcast Network. It is a group of left-wing and liberal podcasters which offers you a real alternative to the mainstream media. Charlie, how can people reach the Progressive Podcast Network?
4: I am not going to endorse this liberal trash.
5: Uh, okay, I guess I'll tell them. Uh, you can go to newmediarevolution.org. And don't forget to check out my podcast, The Florida Soapbox, the progressive podcast network.
0: Check it out Now.